I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Whenever I record a podcast, write a review, or craft some sort of critical analysis for a movie, I usually try to approach the subject with the goal of highlighting the merits of something many people might find meritless. Horror movies have, of course, been a main focus of this podcast, and even though horror has been a large and influential part of cinema history in one form or another since the advent of motion pictures, the critical merits of horror movies are often overlooked by general audiences and film scholars alike. And sure, there are a lot of artistically shallow horror movies out there, and while those movies can absolutely be fun and rewarding in their own ways, it can often take a lot of digging before finding anything that general audiences might accept as being of value beyond cheap visceral thrills. And then there are horror movies where there is little to no digging required. These are the movies that come out at the exact right time and have the exact right combination of artistry, craftsmanship, social significance, and yes, visceral thrills. These are the horror movies that influence the genre for years after their release. Even though the big award shows might snub them, the merits of these films are obvious and cannot be denied by anyone. And anyone who tries to deny them is wrong. John Carpenter's Halloween is one of these movies. Even though it wasn't necessarily the first of its kind, the success of Halloween helped shape the horror industry for years, and its influence can still be felt to this day. So tonight, I'd like to discuss some of the many merits of John Carpenter's Halloween as I welcome back Joey and all of you to The Last Theater. So welcome back to The Last Theater, Joey. It's been a while since we have been in the same room together doing one of these. At least talking about movies. At yeah. least talking about movies. And so with this, we are venturing on another journey together throughout the franchise of Halloween. Ooh. Much like the Friday the 13th marathon that we did, was that last year? Two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it was two years ago. But it was a lot of fun regardless. Yeah, yeah. And so we will be looking at each movie in sequence throughout the month of October, of course leading up to halloween and we will be looking at all the movies in order including the reboots and oh. the newer one and all the weird timelines we're going to try to make sense of the weird timelines and how many there are and how it all goes oh boy this is gonna be i mean you know you could say what you want about friday the 13th but at least they tried to stay in some sort of uh yeah there's thing. a there's Ooh. a continuity except for maybe like jason goes to hell but there's a good continuity throughout we yeah, yeah, go okay, listen okay. to the jason goes to hell one if you want to know yeah. my thoughts about sure that. sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah this what what can you say about the original halloween that hasn't already been said over right. and over again all right so we're gonna shut the door and bubble into the very first one right 1978 yes 
John Carpenter's Halloween. Officially, John Carpenter's Halloween. I, I, I knew that that was one of his... Uh, uh, he got title. Oh, really? He, his he got, name is officially part of the titles, technically? Yeah, and okay. I, that was one of his bargaining chips, because he had a little juice going into this uh, indie production. Yeah. And he got Final Cut. Oh, yeah. So, so this is his baby. This okay. When you talk about the auteur theory of motion pictures and we'll talk about that a little in the second one as well because it's the opposite of that apparently <laughs> but this one is john carpenter's vision from beginning to end pretty much of course he had help along the way deborah hill uh, is a oh, big part of writing it huge and crafting and, it and definitely we'll talk about deborah some as well but just going on the front end there yeah. like almost talking about some of that pre-production stuff yeah john carpenter coming off some great pictures yeah and you go back and go through his can. It's really rewarding. We we did a John Carpenter Apocalypse trilogy very recently, yeah. and there's some rewarding stuff in there too. But prior to John Carpenter's Halloween, I, I know he did Dark Star, which I'm still guilty of not having seen. I'm I'm gonna just put that up front. Yeah, I know you've seen it. I've it's been so long. We need we need to watch that one probably sure. because it's because clearly if you've listened to any of these recent shows on the last theater, you know that we're both huge fans of john carpenter yeah and yeah i sort of remember dark star but i don't remember it that well yeah so there's a, f a handful of movies one of them being a john carpenter movie that is kind of like homework going into this first halloween in my opinion yeah. and those are the films that influenced it and the film he made pretty much right before it mm -hmm. so as far as carpenter's influence that he's gone on record with and i'll even get into his musical influences later okay cool but uh i know it's obvious stuff but Psycho yeah. is the big one. Yeah. And the other big one is Black Christmas. Yes. The original Black Christmas from 1974. Those two movies put them in a blender, and mm. that's how Halloween happened, in a nutshell. Yeah. And then the last one you got to go look at is the other movie that made this movie actually possible on big-time levels. Mm. And not that the movie wouldn't have gotten made without it. Well, that's also debatable. But Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. Absolutely, because he did that like a couple of years prior to you know, Dark Star and Assault on Precinct Thirteen were yeah. Carpenter's two features before this one. So this is his like third movie, really, besides yeah. shorts and things like that. Yeah. So I hope everybody's taking notes. Go, <laughs> go get into all that stuff before or after this show. But yes. Yeah, because like when I was talking about it, this isn't necessarily the first of its kind because, like you said, you can see you can clearly see the influences of those movies you just mentioned on Halloween. You have the first person view in Black Christmas that they use extensively throughout that. But you can go back even further to something like Peeping Tom, which was like one of the first ones where they had, from the killer's point of view, he literally had a camera and you were seeing through the camera lens as he was killing these people, oh, wow. which is going back even further. Nobody talks about that movie. Yeah, and it's not like... I, I've seen it, it's been a while, but it's not in the same vein necessarily as... Halloween, because Halloween is really, it popularized and influenced slashers. It ushered in this boom of slasher movies that would last and throughout the next few years from 78 to like 80 whatever oh, and into the 90s, the 90s but yeah. <laughs> but yeah it gets more and more ridiculous it quickly escalates and we'll talk about that a little bit yeah it like escalates into uh, all the way to the second one yeah <laughs> like right the, it's immediately felt that yeah it, it is yeah, yeah. But yeah, and it wasn't even the first holiday movie because you had Silent Night, Deadly Night before that and Black Christmas, of course, and which we've actually done a show on Black Christmas as well. Yeah. So you can go check that out as well, which we also both love and watch every oh, year yeah. around Christmas. And, and and I have the fear of going into this episode. I'm going to be very honest mm -hmm. with you. Much like Black Christmas, much like a movie like when we did the first Friday the 13th. Yeah. 
I'm very nervous at talking about a movie that I'm a big fan of. I could go on and on yeah. about it, but you know, with the, the the struggle to do something interesting that no one's ever talked about before, right. maybe. But I'm just gonna try to keep it as real as possible. There's gonna be a lot of glomming on my end, and I'm sure on your end as well. Yeah. I, I spoiler, I do consider this like a damn near perfect movie. So. This is one of the movies. Whenever you go online and do like the top your favorite movies, whatever you sign up to a new social media thing and you have your favorite movies, Halloween's yeah. always in my list. And that's yeah. not just I I love horror movies, but I love other movies as well. Yeah. But Halloween always makes that cut. It's like yeah. out of horror, I would say Halloween. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those are always on my list. Dawn whereas Dawn of the Dead is usually on there as yeah, well. That's on mine. Um, but those are top three for sure yeah. as far as horror movie goes. And ho- movies in general, I think it's just one of the most perfectly crafted. I wouldn't say it's perfect because I don't know if anything is. But yeah. as far as what his intent was and what he tried to do, I think it's as good as it can possibly yeah. be. It's as uh, overtly a 9 on a 10 scale as they say in the yeah. business. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, it is damn near perfect. And you were talking about the links to Psycho. Like, it, clear... But also, I mean, the influences he wears on his characters. Sam Loomis, that name is pulled directly from Psycho. That's yeah. the name of a character yeah. in Psycho. And I guess he was being such an artist at that point. Yeah. Even though he seems like he's having fun. You, mm. you watch some of the production stills, obviously he's the most, uh, you know, serious guy in the room, but yeah. still trying to have that fun. Yeah. But the fact, knowing that Jamie Lee was not his first choice, yeah. uh, he wanted... Uh, june lockhart's daughter the mom yeah. from lassie yeah. and deborah hill was the one that was leaning towards jamie lee so yeah. he didn't even want that reference yeah. but i mean obviously after a while maybe going back and forth and then deborah leaning on him they yeah. were in a relationship at the time mm. jamie lee wins out so why not have that why not have that yeah reference? i don't know she's good you know yeah. this was her first film legit i think she maybe done some television prior to this but this was her first feature length introducing thing yeah for sure and it's interesting that neither one of the leads neither jamie lee curtis nor donald pleasance were the first choices and And i think their namesake christopher lee was the one brought up peter cushing was the second choice peter cushing thought he had a lot more pull after star wars so his asking price went up yeah and the third choice being donald pleasance of course now we can't imagine anybody else doing it. yeah going i haven't I should watch more Donald Pleasance movies because I haven't seen enough. I think, yeah. but I have. He's been in a lot of like low budget B movies. I've seen him on Mystery Science Theater a number of times. <laughs> so if that tells you anything, yeah, I think it was a western role or something that one of the production guys in Halloween said, "Go watch that thing." Yeah, I need to go look. I just go through his IMDb catalog and just go nuts. Right. So yeah, Donald Pleasance. And this goes back to the Black Christmas thing for me. You want to make a good classic movie that lasts a long time and is not so disposable. Yeah. You know, and and of course, we need to kind of get back to this, in my opinion. And maybe it's starting to happen a little bit more with better written scripts. Mm. But the the classic actors that can really sell you on this thing is so paramount. So to a film, even a film like this, that on the surface just seems to be about a bunch of killing and stuff and and teenage things sure donald pleasant's adding that class going back to black christmas and you have really good actors yeah. like margot kidder john saxon olivia hussey mm. talked about this in black christmas but th- this kind of stuff is what's paramount right to make a classic film this is why 40 plus years later we're still talking about a movie like this that's why this franchise is even a damn franchise right yeah absolutely and we can talk about the merits of the acting in this movie that's one of the merits i think yeah. that you cannot yeah. deny that that the the leads if nothing else, the two leads 
Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, they sell this movie entirely. They make you feel that fear. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis through her clear fear, like yelling, running, things like that. But also Donald Pleasance, he's trying to be so in control in this movie, his character of, yeah. of Dr. Loomis. But you can tell, like, it's the little things that he does that, sh that give away his fear and his just if he feels like he wants to run the entire movie yeah. you see him fiddling with his gun like constantly throughout the movie and even going well this is in the second one but he says like it's my security blanket it makes me feel safer and right. even though it's pretty ineffective yeah. apparently yeah. but um yeah it's just the the gravity that donald pleasance brings to this and i probably said the exact same words like you said for the black christmas thing but he those two people sell the movie entirely and make you scared when there's not much blood there's not much violence really no. um but when it ha that. it's pretty yeah, much all up front so. when it happens it's jarring yeah. and they're the ones that sell that for the most part of course and john carpenter and the mood he sets and the lighting the way he uses his camera also sells that yeah and and not that we're going to go in order we never really do too much but the opening shot which they it's been talked about a lot yeah it's like three takes looks like one mm -hmm. so well done uh that's i don't think as much of a reference to psycho as it is hitchcock's rope which is another movie people yeah. need to go watch yeah which looks like one take but it's not a lot of takes even though it's it's not a lot and yeah the thing with rope is like you see you focus on the box like the entire time yeah. and the rope sticking out of it yep and so stuff's happening in the background while us as the viewer we're constantly watching this thing and carpenter does that a lot in this yep. movie not necessarily the same way he has the more insidious things happening in the background a lot while we have like jamie lee curtis or donald pleasance in the foreground one of your favorite scenes one of my favorite scenes i think is the when after Jamie Lee Curtis and um, Nancy Loomis, yeah, and Nancy Loomis, they drive off after seeing Annie's dad at the the shop that got yeah, robbed, the town sheriff. Whatever, yeah. yeah, and Loomis, Doctor Loomis, comes up and he's talking to the sheriff, and he's standing there waiting. And in the background, you see it takes a long time, but you see the car that Michael is driving slowly go behind him as dr loomis yeah. like looks in the back and that happens and, over and over throughout the movie and that's only you'll only look for that station wagon and repeated viewings yeah because he pulls up really early in the conversation to a red light yeah yeah <laughs> Who, and he knows how to follow traffic signals right. apparently but yeah. there's that apparently and, someone taught him how to drive yeah yeah that way i learned how to drive by watching people too so it is a thing yeah, yeah, yeah. i just want to clarify that for anybody that's nitpicking yeah. this movie but yeah that shot man that whole wide shot it's such a hitchcock shot and you can see all three sides of the street, and he's on the, he's on the third, the dead end where mm -hmm. the shop is. But he's just looking around, and he's still doing that nervous look. Yeah. So he's being nervous for all of us. But then, like, he's just right there. Yeah. And it's just that he's toying with everybody the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, he had just come, and the and the yeah the reason he's there is because he was just following the girls in the car. Yeah. So he went and followed them. Yeah. And who knows? Did he even see Loomis? Probably. But Maybe. there's that whole thing, too. Yeah. Like, wow. So I love that whole scene because it's got all the good jokes in it, too. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they put you right back in it. It's right. Like, oh. Yeah, because there's yeah. not a whole lot of comedy in it. It's mostly just natural between... I mean, they're all kids. They're yeah. all high school kids. And that's, so it's just that's natural a, banter between the kids. Yeah. Good credit to Deborah Hill. Apparently, she gets the credit for writing all the female dialogue. Oh, yeah. And uh, Nancy Loomis and PJ Souls do an amazing job. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not like that they were slouches coming into this either yeah. and pj souls 
purely got the movie based off of Carrie. Totally. And they totally. And they do add to this movie. Yeah. So we talked about how great Jamie and Donald are in this movie, but do not discount Nancy and yeah, PJ. Of course. It's that great like it's it's a perfect yin yang to this yeah. nearly perfect film, you know. Yeah, so. because without the characters of Annie and Linda, they're the ones that are the sacrifices to make Michael Myers that much more intimidating when he does start to chase Lori and so if they weren't able to pull off those roles and make you instantly like them and you get this dynamic between the three girls and the friendship that they have yeah and if you didn't care about them then those deaths wouldn't matter and they wouldn't be scary but you do care so they are scary and that's something that slashes later on got away from but this is I almost hesitate to call it a slasher in itself, even though it is, but it's not what slashers would become, which yeah. was more about the slashing and not the build-up to it. It's yeah. more of a... It's focused on the tension building up to it. I think John Carpenter actually said that his intention was to make like a haunted house movie Yeah. when, when he started with this, and I think he did accomplish that. It's this yeah. blending... It's the perfect in-between between something like Psycho and a haunted house movie and the slashers that would come after it it's it's yeah. right there in the middle because it has all these different elements to it yeah and you know hey not for nothing but getting billing during the opening credits john carpenter's score yeah uh the, was it the bowling green symphony or something that's yeah. a reference to yeah. his town but oh and by the way and also haddonfield was the town that deborah hill grew up in but it was in okay. new jersey as yeah. opposed to illinois yeah so little fun facts there. I try to pick up some stuff along the way. Now that you can't find this stuff out there, but the music, man. The, first of all, John Carpenter being this amazing guy that happens to be a director mm -hmm. and writer and mm -hmm. also knows how to score some movies. Yeah. It's like, uh, and he probably does a lot of producing too, even though he's not credited. It's like the old Ed Wood thing, you know. Yeah. But the fact that he can play music and add these amazing layers to the overall mood and yeah. the infamous story he screened this for somebody without the music some you know some hollywood guy and it's like this isn't very scary and yeah. then he puts the music on they're like okay that's it yeah and think about it if assault on precinct 13 didn't have his music in mm. it you know so and the music for assault is apparently what got donald pleasance to even agree to meet john yeah. carpenter in the first place because his daughter being a musician a rock musician mm saying that she really loved John Carpenter's score from Assault. And yeah. that's, he's like, that's the only reason I'm here, is, is how <laughs> the conversation opened. Right. Uh, yeah, music, is it's Hall of Fame worthy. Absolutely, I, yeah. I put Carpenter up there. You know, obviously he's not a John Williams or anything that classically, like... A timeless sound but to me it's as timeless as any of those things it is. and he should be in the conversation of great film composers is all i'm trying to say for sure because halloween is a very minimalist movie it's it's stripped down to it's that urban legend of the guy escapes from the mental asylum or whatever and and kills people that's all it is really yeah. so i think it makes sense that the music would be stripped down as well. He, I've seen things where John Carpenter talks about his process and he basically just watches the movie with the keyboard in front of him and he plays it as he's watching it. Yeah. And that's basically what it is. He goes back and adds things to it, yeah. but that's what it is. And I think that's what it needs to be because if you had the John Williams score in there, it wouldn't feel the same. Wow. And you can see that in even in the next movie, which Carpenter did the music for as well, but yeah. he had help and because he wasn't super into that. But we'll get to that in the yeah. second one. And the only one I 
I would have probably asked to do if I was in their shoes and I wasn't a music guy. Yeah. John Carpenter, he probably should have gotten like a, a Jerry Goldsmith or something. Like yeah. the guy that did The Omen. Sure. Like that is the only thing that could have come close, I think, to helping this movie. But yeah. I, I wouldn't want to know that universe anyway. Just yeah. Because it just has to be John's music. Right. So. And yeah. it's the sound, like you associate the sounds and not even just the music itself, but the noises that come out whenever you see the shape whenever you see michael myers yeah. and it's it's in your face and i remember reading somewhere i don't remember where it was but he was saying that one of his influences was suspiria and if you've seen suspiria the music is absolutely at the forefront it is constantly in your face we went to see a live version of suspiria yeah, and because the music is so much a part of the movie that you can watch the music play live and it's like a rock concert basically with yeah. a movie playing yeah. and that's it's not the same in halloween yeah. but it is that much in your face and at the forefront of why it's scary is because those now when you hear those sounds when you hear that like screeching sound of michael coming out from the dark or yeah. standing into frame you associate the two things together yeah, I call that the scary wincing balloon sound. Yeah, that, that's what it sounds like. And, yeah. and Carpenter says it's a really cheap ploy, but it totally works. Yeah. And there's another moment in the film that actually, I, of course you can give John Carpenter the credit for this, but it sticks out so much, and I really had to pay attention on this latest viewing here. And I always really like that shot when the kid that's being babysat by Jamie Lee Curtis, Tommy, oh, yeah. he looks out the window and he sees the shape carrying... Yeah. Nancy Loomis's body yeah. through the yard, you know, kicks open the door. Yeah. And I was like, what is that part? What is even the name of that piece that he's doing? And then I realized on this viewing that he's actually using the score from Forbidden Planet that's playing on the television in the house. Yeah, yeah. And it sticks out so much because it doesn't sound anything like you've heard throughout the entire film. It's this real doom and gloom, like, yeah. like kind of like hum. But it's it's but when you watch the movie, you can clearly probably see a spaceship floating around. Yeah. But when you see it in that context, it it, it takes on an entirely different meaning, yeah. and it totally worked. And I don't know if that was an accident. Like obviously the audio from the room or mm. something like that that might have come in and edit, and it just let's go with that. You know, I don't know. He could have put his own thing in there, but he chose not to. Maybe, Those little things yeah. like that, I just it really hit me this time. I, I wouldn't like think it would be an accident because I mean it's clear that he was talk about the craftsmanship of the movie he was very conscious of all the decisions he was making throughout the movie with framing and music and lighting and everything to to get the effect and to me that's like appropriating something from the past which clearly he was influenced by movies like forbidden planet and the thing which was playing yeah. at uh, the yeah. the 50s version of the black and white version of the thing he was bragging that he had like a real high-end tape copy of that plan no oh, yeah <laughs> those are both his like actual studio copies yeah, that's cool. and who could get studio copies at the time no like you right. had to be in the business yeah uh you know he's like yeah that's my v playing on my vcr that's <laughs> my television you know it's, it's it, his influence is all over it but it's also taking that those sounds from those movies who that probably people in 1978 don't really find those movies scary anymore because yeah. i mean they weren't really they were they looked kind of hokey at the time of watching them and they're appropriate enough now for kids in 1978 to right. watch yeah on exactly <laughs> but he takes those sounds from that movie that that is from a different era with different fears and he takes it and he places it on top of michael myers the shape and makes it scary again yeah. so it, it's the it's 
clear that he's taking his influences and re reworking them into something that's scary at the time that it was made. That's exactly right. Him and Deborah. I just recently watched the uh, John Carpenter Deborah Hill commentary, yeah. and they said that was us as kids yeah. being scared of the atomic age. Right. And now we're bringing you into this age. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of goes into maybe some of the the themes and the people have talked about the themes to death about slashers and what they mean and things like that and just real briefly because i don't want to get too far into it because you can hear anyone talk about that kind of stuff it's the the sex and violence thing and the having underage being promiscuous is a sentence of death but john carpenter never intended for that to be the case and watching the movie i i see that he didn't necessarily no they're very empowered women matter of fact the women are the smart ones of this like in in a sense think about like jamie lee she only really starts to panic when it's real bad right it has to get real bad at the end for her to like just lose her shit but at the same time she tries to remain calm she tries to you know figure out how to get out of it right loomis is just as scared just not showing it yeah so there's no difference i think they're very equal and uh, the like I said, you know, the rest of the guys, even the sheriff, he's kind of out to lunch. He's kind of yeah. he's he's very much a dawdler, like yeah. And and then like you know the the boyfriends, they're not much you know to do right. with the plot. They're yeah. just there, and that's that's the thing. They're just there. The other girls are not just there. Yeah, they're a big part of the movie. Yeah. And it's having someone like Deborah Hill there to maybe keep any possibility of that in check. Right, was also very paramount. I think to the movie. I'm sure some of these other slashers are morality tales and they did it on purpose but it's definitely not this one at all right no way i people read that into these movies because i can see how you would read that from a cursory viewing of it it's there if you want to see on the surface yeah yeah. and you can just take that and run with it which i'm sure some did some didn't that's changed over the years but to me like you talk about the atomic age that was all about fear of the bomb and of communism uh, yeah and communism and things from outside coming in but what one of the things that Halloween and the movies leading up to Halloween did was to bring the fear into the house and into suburbia and it wasn't this thing from outside the fear was in your house and it was permeating throughout like your kids like they're in danger of whatever is going on at the time because there was so much social change going on throughout the late 60s and into the 70s when when all these movies were happening and people weren't locking their doors yeah yeah and like, so those movies right sold locks <laughs> right like, really, you know, and the the extra lock yeah the bolt on the door yeah i guarantee you that is almost strictly because right <laughs> those yeah. scary movies and just the nightly news those are the two yeah. main influences for the bolt on the door because <laughs> i mean vietnam changed horror movies oh. and the manson killings changed horror movies because yeah. the the fear was slowly coming in texas chainsaw massacre happened a few years before this but this is all part of the same genre i think of bringing the fear into the home and it does it in such an like in insidious way because the it's literally one of the kids that grew up in this house yeah. is the murderer that's the boogeyman now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. At the first shot there, yeah. right at the very beginning, and he knows to go back to that house. And it's very like I said, you said it's contained in the house. Yeah. Like even something like a psycho. Yeah. Where'd she go? She yeah. went out of town. Right. She went to this motel. Yeah, everybody does it. Yeah. But that's not your home. Right. I mean, this is a home invasion. Yeah. Man. Just like Black Christmas was. And once again, 
not your home address. People are living there. People do do yeah. that thing. People right. do stay at sorority houses. Yeah. Still different. Halloween went straight to a residence. Yep. I think that's that's where it's like, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's another thing. And those things, people don't realize it. Yeah. But that's why it's so important. Those are those little things in your inner brain that you right. don't even realize. And I'm just kind of realizing it myself. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why it was so scary then. And I think why it's so scary now is because then like the idealized version of the family unit from like the 50s and 60s the the two parents two kids and a dog whatever that isn't present in halloween you see Lori's dad for like 15 seconds at the beginning when he tells her to go do something and then go away yeah, yeah. you never see any of the other parents except for the sheriff of yeah. annie's dad the sheriff yeah. bracket and he wouldn't be around that night if he didn't have to. Yeah, and like, like he, he was... knows, it's like eh, Halloween. It, yeah, stuff happens. He, yeah. the thing he tells Loomis, kids out parking, right. just doing the stuff that they do. Yeah, he wouldn't be there. And like you were saying, he was he was dawdling. Like he, yeah. I liked that he believed Loomis enough to go with him and look. Yeah. But he didn't really take him that seriously until right. he actually saw it with his own eyes. Yeah. And that's, I think, is the... If there is a theme that I latch onto, it's that of the absent parents. Whether it's physically absent, where they're just not in the movie, or just mentally absent, where you can just... They're doing whatever. Example is... I know what this, you're going to say, too. It's one of the best moments of the whole movie. Well, my example, when the scene we talked about at the store when Annie is talking to her dad, and they're like, Lori and Annie are smoking pot in the car, and they're yeah. like, oh, get it away, because yeah. they see that it's her dad who's a cop. Yeah. And after they leave, Lori's like, I'm sure he could smell it. And he's like, no. And Annie's like, no, of course he couldn't. And like, yeah, he could smell it. Yeah. Like, we all know that he could, but he doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't care what his daughter is doing. And that's leading to, it's opening the door to the boogeyman, basically. Yeah. Also, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. The one I was thinking about was at the end when Lori goes outside and she's running around yeah. in the neighborhood. And she tries to go in that other house next door. Yeah. And... Oh the yeah! I doesn't let her in. That's one of the yeah. That's one of the most damning scenes in the movie for the people that live in these houses and the yeah. adults that live in these houses is that looks turns on the light, looks through the blinds, yeah. decides to close the blinds and shut the light off yeah. and shut. I think he shuts the porch light off yeah, too. He does. He's like yeah. it's like a screaming girl, and yeah. you're gonna do that. And it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's a pretty damning portrait yeah. of. Even if that wasn't the necessarily the intention of what he was doing, right. that was a society that John Carpenter was portraying, which was that society in the late 70s. Yeah. We'll get to more on that character yeah. in number two. <laughs> right. Because it actually yeah. fleshes character out yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. We'll get, we'll get to all that. and It's fun. I do want to talk about, a little bit about the boogeyman, because I think that is the biggest part of the movie that is lost after this movie. It's the... Not necessarily supernatural, but with the way the ending is in the original movie, with the final shots of the movie and the shape is gone, he's not there anymore, and they have all the shots of these places that we've been to, the the houses and the street, and we see all these shots that are now familiar to us on this on this street. And then iconic breathing. And you Nick just Castle. hear the breathing as that's happening, and that's just after... Lori is like, was that the boogeyman? And yeah. Loomis was like, yes, it was. After the whole movie yeah. of telling the kids that the boogeyman doesn't exist. Yeah. But she's also been trying to convince herself yeah. of the same thing yeah. the entire film. Yeah. And now her world has been turned upside down. What, yeah. a, what an ending. It's such a, a haunting ending because yeah. 
to me, what those final shots and the, the breathing over those shots is saying is that this is a very nondescript suburban town. It's supposed to look like any town USA, where people are living, middle class people are living in these towns all across the country. And to me, that's what those were. It was saying, this is everywhere. The boogeyman exists, whether it's in physical form or whether it's... This is a representation of the evil that is present within yeah. any city in any state in america it's perfectly done i yeah. uh i told you recently i found out that that was pasadena california yeah and i said if i ever win the lottery i'm gonna buy a house there yeah just lock your doors well yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's perfect looking you know yeah so and i'm sure the weather is perfect year round right obviously it is they don't really seem to have a fall. Right. They had to paint leaves. <laughs> I was going to say, didn't they have to like bring in leaves to make it's, it look like it's Halloween the same, or October? It's like the same bag of leaves, apparently. They had like a leaf wrangler. <laughs> they only had so much money for leaves, they could yeah. only get one. It's like one garbage bag, so they paint these leaves brown. And then you can see them being fanned in on certain <laughs> shots. Knowing, you have to do yeah. one screening of this just on leaf patrol. Right. Watch it that way. And even if you watch a certain commentary, it's probably more so the John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis one, yeah. pointing out the leaves. And John's great because you could tell that he's not like a snob. Right. He's pretty self-deprecating. Yeah. And he's even like, you know, he'll even bring up things like, okay, I left this in, but you know, that's just the way it is. Right. Apparently, PJ Souls trips on something on oh, the really? set, yeah. like a like a some sort of stand or something that's on the floor. Yeah. As she's about to go upstairs with her boyfriend, <laughs> he he'll point every shot and mistake out prior, and he's he doesn't sound like he's like bummed out about. It. He's like, yeah. well, this is coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like Mark Maron and Glow. It's You're like, yeah, right. you know, hey. <laughs> it's like Sam Raimi in the the commentaries for Evil Dead. He talks about like stabbing Bruce Campbell with a stick and like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and John's not even upset about the fact that people could see the wrench. He's like, we yeah. did the best we could. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the wrench being the uh, hand that breaks yeah. the window at the beginning. I mean, it's. Yeah. I don't think it's I a problem. It, yeah, yeah, I noticed yeah. it now. They pointed it out, so now I'm always going to see it. Like, yeah, I noticed it in the last few viewings. I've seen it. I guess the better the quality gets, the from VHS to DVD <laughs> yeah. to Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> you can see it better and i've seen it i mean it's it's just part of the movie now and i don't necessarily think it's even a problem like michael could have gotten a wrench from somewhere like why is that i don't think they needed to hide it arts and crafts hour he just paints it flesh color right way they never take it away from (laughs) you see there is an explanation yeah painting it was how he got it into his person in order to get it out whenever they all escaped do you think after a while anybody looks twice at what they're doing in arts and crafts during that hour you know well if dr loomis was there he'd just be staring at michael the entire time michael's painting a ranch flesh colored yeah and there's someone else in the corner Uh, i'm gonna steal a joke from lewis black there was somebody in the corner knitting a sweater that isn't actually there (laughs) you just stop paying attention after a while (laughs) well yeah so going back Sort of to the boogeyman thing. Okay. Yeah. One of the motifs throughout the movie is, of course, the scares, but not necessarily the scares for us. One of the things that I believe it's the sheriff, Sheriff Brackett says that everyone deserves a good scare. Yeah. And you see that throughout the movie. And it's interesting. If you watch for it, you can see that it's like an infection. People get scared, so they scare someone else. Yeah. The, the boys scare Tommy at the beginning that he's going to get you. He's going to yeah. get you. And they trip him and he breaks the, the jack-o'-lantern. 
Later on, Tommy scares Lindsay when they're in the house. He's doing it intentionally, knowing how bad he felt when the boys were doing it to him. Yeah. He's doing it to Lindsay now. Yeah. And they're, everybody, it's this cycle of, of fear that just, it doesn't really begin anywhere because it goes in circles. Yeah. Dr. Loomis scares the boys that scare Tommy later on, and he laughs about it. But then the sheriff walks up behind him and scares Loomis immediately. <laughs> it's a great moment. So, yeah. So it's, and then those kids, one of those, one of those three kids got it real bad that day. Yeah. Because he's the one that right. ran into Michael. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's that whole cycle of fear that um, I don't think it was an intentional thing to say anything, but you can read into it like it's it, it doesn't it's just there. It's something that people pass on from one yeah. to the other. Yeah. And it's that unknown thing. Everybody's had a boogeyman dream. Yeah. Whether you've had one or a hundred. Yeah. You've had one. And this movie personifies a per, it's just perfect yeah i mean it's it's so yeah. well done and, yeah. and i think maybe from then on people saw the shape right instead of just maybe a different kind of generic boogeyman yeah maybe he looked like scarecrow in the batman right. comics at one point but he doesn't anymore yeah not not ever 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 yeah looks like the guy in the reverse shatner mask yes <laughs> so. and yeah it's just some of the shots like looking out across the house to annie's house and you see the shape standing there and and just so much talked about oh, the, oh, the background oh, the stuff. Line, the clothesline. Yeah, line. seeing him in the clothesline, yeah, which the, the station wagon outside the schoolyard, yeah, um, standing across the school. Like you've seen those shots in other movies. Yeah. The same thing with the the people outside. I believe you can see that in like It Follows, where there's someone standing outside looking into the school. Um, yeah, just thinking yeah. off the top of my head, Hereditary. They do the same thing. Uh, there's all sorts of movies with that shot. Yeah. The one in the where you see the shape in the clotheslines with the the yeah. sheets billowing. Yeah. In it from the '90s, you see Pennywise through in the clotheslines. It's yeah. the same thing. So yeah. you, the influence is clear yeah. and it's effective because it's still scary to this yeah. day. But there's that one shot that I don't think anybody has ever even done a tribute to mm-hmm. that, that I've seen. I'm, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's a perfect moment. And it's just, I, maybe even at the time, they were like, wow, we got it real good. Yeah. It was, and you talked about the lighting earlier. It's mm. that scene when Jamie Lee has found all the bodies, you know, all the oh, dead yeah. bodies in the room. And she cowers down in the corner right outside the door of that horrible room. Mm-hmm. And you see the shape materialize really slowly yeah. out of the dark. It is a perfect moment. It's just like he like coalesces out of the darkness. He yeah. Just, yeah. And they were just saying to just dial up the light just a little bit yeah. at a time. And it's just... And I don't even think about the production when I watch it. Right. In, in the moment. Yeah. Because it's that good. But yeah, I, if anybody out there listening has seen somebody even just rip that shot off, I'm just mm. curious to watch it. I want to see it. So if you know one later on, let me know. We'll, we'll do it on the wrap-up. You got one? We'll, so we'll see one in part two. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. But that's... <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> rain on my parade i'm sorry <laughs> that's it's, all right it, but what do you think perfect moment absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah i was just trying to think of my favorite scenes and or shots that's definitely up there as one of my favorites in yeah. any movie really yeah and if um, you want to know all the trickery all the all those yeah. factoids are out there like i said watching the commentaries uh, are very rewarding yeah like any you can watch the movie yet pretend like you're reading IMDb facts at the same time because that's exact, exactly where they get all that stuff from. Yeah. I have now discovered this. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're not so in the know. You just happen to have the same budget I do. Right. <laughs> and maybe a little more time to go on the internet. Yeah. Uh, but 
Yeah. Uh, is there anything else we could possibly talk about this without just going shot for shot? Yeah, I think we just start repeating ourselves. The only other thing I want to talk about is specifically about shots. It's like this is the only time we can really get wine and cheese because this is the only time the series is going to do right, one too. Yeah. So let's just go for it. And I don't think we're it. that wine and cheese. No, I mean, no, this, this, this stuff is very obvious, no. I think. And I'm I just do... saying if you want to go real yeah, deep... Yeah, yeah. Let's do it now, because we're not doing it later. I don't really... Maybe on the wrap-up, we can kind of look at... To see what these movies mean. But I don't think he intended for this to mean something beyond what he meant for it yeah. to be. Which was a story... A haunted house movie about the boogeyman. Yeah, and, and just to be like, hey, I'm a good director. And I'm going to make this... Yeah. I'm going to take this script. And sometimes it doesn't even need to be writing, directing. A good yeah. director can take a mediocre script. Right. And make it amazing, even yeah. if they didn't write it. Right. Uh, I could go on and on about examples of that, yeah. but like from a script that was called The Babysitter Murders, right. <laughs> like, and he took this thing, first of all, changing the title, immediately the, the perspective is way different. Yeah. So it's like, okay, that one little move right there. And yeah. he just took it, just, like I said, yeah, civil movie, made damn near perfect. Right. And uh, doesn't get any better than this, uh, especially in this series. Yeah. Which will be real fun. I think one thing that gets lost is some of the like really long shots. We talked about the foreground background stuff. Yeah. But I think the long shots really build that tension up and up and up and up and up. And yeah, that pullback. Yeah. When you reveal the kid. Yeah. I think that's the other thing is that like it's almost like a time we live in now. Mm. Like let's not gloss over this. The reveal of it being a kid. Yeah. I mean, was way ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, the bad seed was the closest thing at that point. Sure, yeah. Which preceded that. And I'm sure maybe that's maybe that's where some of that influence could have come from. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's all I could think of. But yeah, that pullback, man. And that's, there, that's that is just... one of my favorite shots in the movie when you see little Michael and his parents arrive and they, they take the mask off. Again, the parents weren't there, um, but they arrive and it's it's almost like a painting like they don't move like nobody yeah. moves once they take the mask off they're just kind of leaning over staring at him and michael's staring straight ahead it's, and it's just perfectly still as they pull back out so it's it's really unnerving because it's it's not really real it's it's surreal to a certain extent yeah, because hey, it's of like a how, painting yeah exactly it's, it's like it's like it used to be a norman rockwell thing but now this is the new norman yeah. rockwell yeah, yeah. and we're going to pull back on it and just show you as a painting yeah. that this is what this is yeah I think I don't really have like two nitpicks on this film. Sure. One's just funny because we like to joke about it. Mm. Is the was it sixty-seven second sex? Oh uh, yeah. There's that. <laughs> Judas uh, Michael's sister's time upstairs with her boyfriend is is very short. Yeah. Yeah, and I almost could say that that guy is the sheriff in two, but maybe I'll get into more of that later. <laughs> um, but also, it's also that same beginning scene is when. Michael goes to open the door. Michael mm. is clearly the height of Deborah Hill. Yeah, that is the only thing top. that I could yeah. really nitpick about this, as far as like, and that's that's it. That's all I got. Right. Like, you know, yeah, that's what makes it not perfect. Because yeah, he right. would, his eyes would be at the doorknob, not the not the top door. That's lock. true. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I had to really dig hard to find something to just yeah criticize. 
<laughs> I think the shots like that, the because that was early days. I don't even think it was Steadicam. It was like like it was pan, like a new Panaglide or something. Yeah, it I was think. a new thing at the yeah, time. They were saying so, that that's how that those shots happen. Yeah, so. and those are always kind of awkward when you have to do a lot of stuff because yeah. whenever you see whoever it is, you're supposed to see their arm. They always look like they're coming from way around. It's not like it doesn't look exactly like you would see it. Yeah, and even the watching themselves stab the sister. Yeah. That, that's not supposed to be working you right, know? But, right. but it's it's good effect yeah so that can be forgiven there's those things like that and apparently deborah's just like hugged around carpenter yeah. <laughs> as he's like moving the camera through the house it's really the only thing you could do because it's all her arms yeah and stuff She's so that's wearing... why she really is yeah. reaching for... it's not yeah. straight it's like yeah. around the yeah. side yeah. yeah she's wearing the clown shirt and yeah. those are her little hands yeah <laughs> and talking about the stabbing of judith at the beginning like there is some blood there and some nudity but so you get that aspect of it but there's not a lot i think part of that kind of harkens back to i would say the psycho shower scene because in that you don't see any nudity there's a little blood finger quote blood yes but it's it's more of the intention and the the way that it's edited together where you get the fear and you feel like you really did see this woman get stabbed for judith it's a little bit different because it's one shot but the mask of that is over the camera lens where you only see the two holes and you see him looking down and back up you never see the stab mark you just see the knife coming down you see judith screaming you see the blood then you see her on the ground so you don't see anything but it's still just as effective like that that's the most famous stabbing scene besides the one that Bob gets. I didn't want to let this go before we get out of here. Yeah. The Bob death I, that's so iconic. That might be my favorite, I think. Watching it again for like the thousandth time the other day. And nowadays they'd be like, get to it. Yeah. And that's what Carpenter said. I was just like, just it would, it's always get to it, get to it. Yeah. But he's going to stretch it further. If yeah. someone on the set said get to it, he'd be like, no, we're going to go longer <laughs> right, now. Yeah. So the Bob death, oh my God. And like, you know, pinning up against the wall. It kind of chokes him a little bit, yeah. pins him up against the door, stabs him into the door where he's just standing there, and of course, him tilting his head back and forth. It's one of the most iconic moments in film history, yeah. not just horror film history, definitely top three horror film, probably. Sure. But just cinema history whatsoever. Didn't want to let it go without talking about that. It's yeah. a, it's a great moment. That's so. Like I said, it might be my favorite scene kill scene in the movie not that there's a lot to choose from but yeah (laughs) that's the first time you really see michael's power and how big he is because when you see him up next to the girls of course he's going to be a lot bigger than that of course yeah but bob this guy he's not a small nerdy guy he obviously at least plays basketball right like that's the thing like yeah maybe not football but he probably plays basketball but when michael just it's the lighting it's it's everything about it because it's so dark and you you know something's going on, but you're not exactly sure because Michael does kind of play around with people. He yeah. he uses distractions to get you to look one way and get the people to look one way while he's somewhere else. Yeah. And when he just bursts out of that cabinet yeah. and just immediately goes towards Bob and just pushes him up against the wall, it's it's that power and it's just that like primal kind of feeling of this thing that is just taking over Bob, basically. Which kind yeah. of harkens back to... In the class scene, I swear I'll move on in a second, but the class scene where Lori is sitting there and Michael's across the street, whatever, what they're talking about in class that Lori answers the question to is talking about fate and talking about 
how this person saw fate as a religious thing, but this other person saw fate as this force of nature, and it's inevitable, and it's it's going to happen because it's just part of how the world works. And to me, that scene with Bob in that in the kitchen when he bursts out like that, he's a force of nature that it's unavoidable. And from that point on, even though he's already killed Annie in the car earlier, yeah. to me, Michael killing Bob in that fashion and just like overpowering completely, it's like, okay, this, you can't fight this. He is coming for all of them. If I may psychoanalyze Michael a little bit here, mm-hmm. uh, it's very unfortunate that he didn't kill his sister's boyfriend in retrospect because Bob didn't deserve to die. You know no. why, Chris? Why? Because Bob was going back for seconds. So for Bob and Linda, you know, they, they did that minute thing or whatever. Yeah. But then he got up as a, as, as a good dude and went uh-huh. and got her a beer. Or was going to get her oh, a beer. Okay. And they were coming back for seconds. They even said yeah, it. Yeah. Like, Judith Myers' boyfriend just... Blew her off completely. Yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah maybe like, I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah, she's like, you, you'll call me tomorrow, right? He's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. As he's putting on his shirt and just yeah. zooming out the door. That motherfucker deserved to die. <laughs> um and yeah, I just felt so bad for that. Yeah. That's why it's tragic. Because Bob doesn't seem like a bad guy. He just seems like a regular ass dude. That's why it's tragic. Well, because to me it he is. was he was going back for seconds. Well, no, no, because everybody, <laughs> but everybody's it. on board with it. That's yeah, what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Like they're yeah, both yeah. on board with yeah, it. Yeah. And and it could have been Dennis Quaid apparently. Oh really? It could have been him. Oh, one of the yeah, most iconic death scenes ever. It was. It would be Say interesting if Dennis Quaid and Christopher Lee. And the the daughter yeah, of June Lockhart's, yeah, June Lockhart's uh, daughter. daughter, if they had been in there, like how different would the movie be? Do you think? I'm just seeing the space ball stunt doubles now. Anyway, <laughs> no disrespect to any of them. All right, all right. We were talking about the kills, and on these looks at franchises of horror movies, we like to keep track of the kills. So this is the official kill count for the first Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978. You get, do you know? I don't know, but is the dog included, is all I'm asking. There are two dogs, actually. Oh, the two dogs? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two dogs. I will not... Mm, it's tough. Do you count a dog as a person? I Dogs are considered part of families, yeah. so I, I'm going to have to did, say let's add them to the count. Man. I did mention two parents, two kids, and a dog earlier, so I guess they will count. Yeah. So with the two dogs, with Annie's dog and the random dog that Michael kills and eats, apparently, that we don't ever <laughs> yeah. see. Yeah. Theater of the mind, for right. sure. Michael kills seven living things in this movie. Five people, two dogs. That we saw. That we that we saw, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That includes little kid Michael killing his sister. Of course. That includes the man in the truck who Michael took the the jumpsuit from, basically, yes. that yes. Loomis doesn't well he discovers the truck with the yeah. body beside him. Yeah. yeah. And then of course Annie, Linda, and Bob are the other three. Yes. So. And if I may a little tribute to Joe Bob Briggs. Four breasts. Yes. So there we go. There, there is your kill count. Five people, two dogs, four boobs. Not kill count. That's not part of the kill count. It's part of our count for this thing. So yeah. So I don't know. That's about all I think that I can add to this. One of the most perfect movies of all time, in my opinion, and a movie that I never, ever, ever get tired of watching I watched it three times this week. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. yeah, the commentaries. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. with commentary, but yeah. still, like, one without yeah. and two with. 
I think maybe like Evil Dead is the only movie I've seen more probably than Halloween or wow. at least as much. It's right. one of those two because I do watch the commentaries for those a lot because okay. they're they're great. And then I'll have to go back and watch the movie without the commentaries yeah. and so. But yeah, if you're gonna if you're not a commentary person, but you're like okay because of this, I'm gonna watch one probably get the latest Blu-ray version. Uh, kind of it, well, if you want more insight, definitely do the John Carpenter Deborah Hill one. Mm. But if you want a little bit more entertainment in the like fun factor a little bit, the Jamie Lee, John Carpenter one, because Jamie Lee hates horror movies. <laughs> so she's always like, oh my God, John, really? That's so scary. Like It's like <laughs> watching it with a slightly aware teenager. Right. And she's always like, that's so scary. Yeah. And she doesn't scream. She just kind of literally just says it <laughs> like that in that right. sense. And then John's like, I'm going to go recommend you some horror movies. He's like, no, I will never watch them. <laughs> and he's like, I watched Silence of the Lambs because somebody gave me all the spoilers and I had it like logged in and right. I took a sheet with it. That's what she's like. So it's really funny to watch or listen to her watch it, even yeah. though she's seen that a good amount of time. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. But she could disassociate it because she was on the set. She, she knows there. what was going on when that happened. Yeah. She knows all the scares. But I like that she is not embarrassed about yeah. Halloween. And yeah. she's not even embarrassed about any of her other Scream Queen stuff. Right. Because she gets it. And yeah. she knows that that is a lot. Of, she goes, I never felt... Ex okay, going back. I want to quote Jamie Lee here. Okay. Jamie Lee Curtis, mm -hmm. horror icon, great actress, married to Christopher Guest. That's still one of the weirdest yeah. things yeah. about her, yeah. in my opinion. But uh, <laughs> I like Christopher. She goes, you know... People talk about these horror movies and say that it exploits women. And I just want to say personally that I never felt exploited until I did, quote, legitimate film. Wow. Because, you know, she was never asked to take her top off yeah. until Trading Places. Yeah. Like, she might, well, she might have been asked, but. She never did it and she was never forced into it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> she kind of, that kind of, uh, it's her alluding to. Yeah, everybody was really cool in those movies, yeah. and exploiting women was not the order of the day, let's right. just say. Yeah. So if I could add anything by quoting one of the greats, I feel like it's appropriate to end on that. Absolutely. So that is where we will leave this one. You can join us on the next one for Halloween Part 2 from 1981. It's a very different movie in lots and lots of ways even though it's not supposed to be yeah even though yeah we'll get to that it was it wasn't intended to be but it ended up that way because of lots of things apparently going on behind the scenes oh yeah and yeah we will get to that one next in our journey through the halloween franchise here on the last theater and of course you can listen to all of these on cnjradio.com you can go back and listen to some of the other John Carpenter movies we've talked about in the Apocalypse Trilogy, The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. You can go back and listen to that Black Christmas one that we did a year and a half ago or whatever mm -hmm. ago. And you can, of course, go back and listen to the Friday the 13th franchise wrap-up and series, which is going to be what we're doing here to get maybe a little better idea of what you're in store for for the next, what is it, uh, 10 more plus a wrap-up? Something, Something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and by the way, for those of you who are fans of garbage people in these series, <laughs> they will start popping up on the next one. Yeah. We promise. Yeah, there were no garbage people in this one, but there definitely is at least one very large garbage person in part two, which we will talk all about. Oh, yeah. Of course, you can listen to that on cnjradio.com. Again, go to 
the last theater on Twitter and interact there and let us know what you think. What are your favorite kills in Halloween or any of them? What's your favorite Halloween movie? I know what mine is already. <laughs> yeah. There's no surprise at the end spoiling, when we rank them. Yeah, spoiling the series <laughs> wrap up, but I mean, right. just to see where everything else goes, yeah. that's obviously going to be the true entry. Yeah. So. But all of that on cnjradio.com, and we will see you next time.